Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Degani on Talk Show. Thank you for listening. Tonight is Friday, October 21st, 2011. The time goes quicker and quicker. Every week seems like a couple of days. Here tonight we shall see when we get to Mark chapter 5 that there are a couple of discrepancies in the chronology of events between Mark and Matthew where Luke often agrees with Mark and which are often difficult to resolve. These do not, however, discredit the gospel once we realize the nature of the gospel accounts and their purpose. At this point, Mark chapters 4 and 5 contains events found in Luke chapters 8 and 9, and also in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, for the most part. And I will get right into it and discuss the discrepancies and the events in Mark chapter 5 when we get to them. Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And again he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathers to him. So as for him boarding into a vessel to sit in the sea, and all the crowd was by the sea upon the land, so that he would not be crowded and smothered by the crowd. In the ancient Greek world, it was very common for teachers of philosophy to have many followers and to teach people in diverse places. They also had schools. In Acts chapter 19, verse 9, we see a certain school of philosophy mentioned. Such schools were begun by private individuals who would attract, or perhaps already had, adherence to their philosophy. And so we had sophists, Platonists, Epicureans, Stoics, Cynics, Gnostics. There were many different types of philosophical beliefs in the world at that time. Probably not far short of what we have today. And each had many followers and many teachers. Therefore, if Christ had a few dozen followers, he would never have been so despised by the religious authorities in Judea, since it was quite normal for a philosopher to have and to be followed by a few dozen students at this time, or, or even more. Yet if Christ had hundreds of followers, hundreds of listeners, and then hundreds more would have joined the crowd simply out of curiosity, if for nothing else, that it is not hard to imagine that there were thousands of people at many of his gatherings. By this, the officials, the official authorities in Jerusalem, would indeed feel threatened. They'd feel as if they were going to lose control, political control, of the, of the nation to this man. And indeed, we see that the Gospel account reflects that. Interestingly, the Greeks used their leisure time for, for learning, and learning such things as rhetoric, philosophy, and mathematics, among other things. The Greek word skale means rest, or leisure, or spare time. And that's the word from, we, from which we get the English words scholar and school. Today, we have a lot of people professing a philosophy or religion, but they still live the same pop culture mainstream lifestyle. 
In the ancient world, people who professed a philosophy or religion lived in the manner of those professions. Today, most people are quite shallow, and they do not live their profession, except for perhaps an hour a week on Sunday. So we have gluttons and hedonists professing to be Christians, and they are hypocrites. Today, American men spend their leisure time drinking beer and watching apes run around a, with a ball on television. And we look down on our ancestors. Our ancestors would have probably thought that most of us are retarded. Matthew 4, verse 2. And he taught them with many parables, and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, the sower has come out to sow. And it happened during the sowing that some, meaning some seed, fell by the road, and having come the birds then devoured them. And others fell upon the rocks, where they did not have much earth, and immediately sprang up on account of not having deep earth, and when the sun arose, they burned, and on account of not having root, they withered. And others fell into thorns. And the thorns rose up and strangled them, and they did not give fruit. And others fell into the good earth, and rising up and growing, gave fruit, and one had borne thirtyfold, and one sixtyfold, and one a hundred. And he said, He who has an ear to hear must hear. I'd like to quote from the Septuagint, from the Wisdom of Sirach, chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. For if the just man be the son of God, he will help him and deliver him from the hand of his enemies. Let us examine with him with despitefulness and torture that we may know his meekness and prove his patience. Let us condemn him with a shameful death. Of course, this is rhetorical, but it's also a messianic prophecy. For by his own saying, he shall be respected. Such things they did imagine, and were deceived, for their own wickedness had blinded them. As for the mysteries of God, they knew them not, neither hoped they for the wages of righteousness, nor discerned a reward for blameless souls. For God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they that do hold of his side do find it. I will discuss the meaning of this parable shortly after Christ himself explains it below. First, I'd like to make another note on culture. We often see in the New Testament and Old phrases such as eyes to see and ears to hear of people who neither realize nor understand certain things. This adage is also found among the Greeks. While it is seen in Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, all which were written long before his own time, in the Greek tragic poet Aeschylus's Prometheus Bound on lines 446-447, we read, and I quote, First of all, though they had eyes to see, they saw to no avail. They had ears, but understood not. But like to shapes and dreams throughout their length of days, without purpose, they wrought all things in confusion. 
Medicine Lobe Classical Library. There are other examples of this adage in classical writings. This is illustrated only as another example of philosophy and culture shared between Hebrews and Greeks. It seems simple, but a thousand such examples add up. And there are a thousand such examples. Mark 4, verse 10. And when he was alone, those of his relations with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, of the kingdom of Yahweh, is given. But to those outside, to those outside, they can't be inside. All things come in parables. As a side note, in the book of Revelation, we're told that those outside, they go into the lake of fire. Revelation chapters 21 and 22. There is no third choice. You're either in the kingdom of heaven or you're in the lake of fire. Verse 12. That looking they should look and should not see, and hearing they should hear and should not understand. That at no time should they repent and it would be forgiven them. First, I would like to say that the phrase hoi periaton in the Greek, in the Christogenian New Testament is those of his relations, where in the King James and in other versions it is translated literally as those around him, when in fact it, it's, a, um, it's an allegory for those close by, those close in relation to somebody. While that may be literal, the King James rendering, the phrase was generally used of one's companions, associates, colleagues, relations, or family. Since the apostles were chosen for his colleagues and associates, the only logical use of the word that remains is family in the wider sense of one's national kindred. If one wants to demonstrate the fact that these people could not have been polyhemic, multi-ethnic, diverse crowd, which is so typical of settings today in our major cities. The setting being in his own land of Galilee, the intent of my translation was to show that the people around him were indeed his kinsmen, people from his own tribe. The word tribesmen may have been more appropriate. To you, the mystery of the kingdom of Yahweh is given. It's not that his disciples somehow had the understanding to figure out the parables for themselves. Rather, the record is clear that they had to ask him the meanings of his parables, which actually he showed consternation with, as we will see in verse 13. Another example is at Matthew 16:11, where Christ said to the disciples, how, do you, how will you not perceive that it is not concerning bread that I spoke to you, but be on guard or beware because of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? The parables were given to the disciples to know because he explained to his disciples what he meant by the parables. They had no inside knowledge. It was obvious that they were quite naive concerning his intentions when he gave parables. He gave his disciples the explanations and he let everyone else to figure out his words for themselves, if indeed they could. It is clear from verse 12, as it is also repeated in Luke, in Luke 8, 
verses 9 and 10, that he did not want those who were outside, those who were not part of the kingdom of God. He did not want them to repent. The quote is from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where it says, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. While it's the, um, the, the original words are aimed at the people of Judah, Many of them, as we learn from Jeremiah and Ezekiel, were already of mixed race. Either we choose ourselves to obey our God, or we fall by the wayside. That's the lesson. Verse 13, and he says to them, you do not perceive this parable? Then how shall you know any parables? The sower sows the word. Now, these are those by the road where he sows the word, and when they hear it, immediately the adversary comes and takes the word sown in them. And these are those being sown upon the rocks, which when they should hear the word, receive it immediately with joy. And they do not have root in themselves, but they are temporary. Since upon the coming of tribulation or persecution on account of the word, immediately they are entrapped. And the others are those being sown in the thorns. These are those hearing the word and the cares of this age and the deceit of riches and desires for the future entering in, strangle the word, and it becomes fruitless. And these are they having been sown upon the good earth, who hear and take up the word and bear fruit, one thirtyfold and one sixty and one hundred. First, this parable should not be confused with others that use similar language only because the language is similar. Each parable is demonstrably quite independent and has its own meaning. I reference the parable of the wheat and the tares found in Matthew chapter 13, where in that parable the seed, as we are explicitly told, are actually people. Here in this parable, the seed represents the word of God, but it also represents those who grow in that word, especially in verses 18 through 20. Four types of people are illustrated in this parable, and we can readily see that the majority of our people today are of three of those types. Those by the road, where he sows the word, and when they hear it, immediately the adversary comes and takes the word sown in them. The people by the road are in a place of traffic where there are many passers-by. There is the truth. And then there are many other ideas and philosophies, most of which are created by the adversary or Satan, the Jew, those adverse to white culture and civilization. You can hear the truth, and before it takes root or develops in you, one of these, with their disputations and their alternate theories, comes along and convinces you out of it. These are those sown upon the rocks, which when, when they should hear the word, they receive it immediately with joy. 
and they do not have root in themselves, but are temporary, since upon the coming of tribulation or persecution on account of the word, immediately they are entrapped. This type I've seen many, I've experienced many of these people in my lifetime. You can hear the truth, and you can believe it, and perhaps even get to be comfortable with it. But unless you study for yourself why it is the truth, you will not be well established in it, having no foundation of your own, relying on what somebody else told you. So when you are questioned, and when you are persecuted for what you profess to believe, you will break down and perhaps even then begin to renounce it because, not having studied, you cannot provide the solid answers which are necessary to convict your persecutors. Those sown in the thorns, hearing the word, the cares of this age, and the deceit of riches and the desire for the future, what about tomorrow, entering in, strangle the word and it becomes fruitless. These people love the world more than they love God. They hear the word, but they decline to live after the word. Because they would rather become wealthy in the world and enjoy the world. Difficult it is to become wealthy in today's world without first embracing and assisting the enemies of God. Those sown upon the good earth who hear and take up the word and bear fruit one thirtyfold and one sixty and one hundred. These are the few. Those who hear the truth and pursue it they study it for themselves so that it develops within their minds and they become firmly established in it. These people are unshakable. And they can answer their accusers. And they are also able to teach their brethren to do the same thereby bearing fruit. This is why it is written that the kingdom of the heavens is like a treasure hidden in a field. Matthew thirteen forty four. Which finding a man hides and from his joy goes and sells all things whatever he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of the heavens is like a merchant man seeking a, be a beautiful pearl and finding one very valuable pearl, having departed, sold all things, whatever he had, and bought it. When one finds the truth, one hides it until he is assured of himself, that he knows it and he can defend it. Once he possesses it with certainty, then he can display it to others showing that he has it. Mark 421. 
And he said to them, does any lamp go that is set under a basket or under a cot? That's a literal translation. Not that is set upon a lampstand. For it is not hidden except that it should be revealed, nor has it been concealed in order that it would come to be evident. If one has an ear to hear, he must hear. Christ is talking about his own words, which he uttered in these parables, the subject still being the word represented in the parable of the sower which preceded. The sayings of Christ, the parable of the sower, this statement here and the one which follows concerning judgment, are all also found in Luke chapter 8. The lamp here, which is not hidden, but which is placed upon a lampstand for everyone to see, is an allegory. It's an allegory for the word made flesh, for the light which has come into the world, as Christ himself is described in John chapter 1. With that understanding, we could see that these words are quite profound. For the sayings of Christ have indeed been a light set upon a lamp for all the civilized world to see, ever since the first the, the gospel was first spread throughout Europe. This foreknowledge which he had concerning his words is also revelatory of his divinity. He was talking about his own words. He's laying these parables out and saying that they were laid out not to be hidden, but they would be out there in front of everybody. And they are. And they have been for 2,000 years. The light come into the world did not come into the world to be hidden. Mark 4.24 And he said to them, watch how you listen with the measure by which you measure it shall be measured for you, and it shall be added to you. For he who has, it shall be given to him, and he who has not, even that which he has, shall be taken from him. Luke 18, Luke 8.18 ends this same statement with, even that which he supposes to have shall be taken from him. The admonition concerns hypocritical judgment. If you judge your brethren harshly, we're all sinners, you shall also be judged harshly. If you treat your brother fairly, and especially with mercy, you shall be judged fairly. Those who love their brethren, their white Christian Anglo-Saxon brethren, or related, those who love their brethren store treasure in heaven, and they shall be rewarded much. Those who care not for their brethren have no treasure in heaven, and even what they seem to have, they shall lose. Verse 26. And he said, Thusly is the kingdom of Yahweh like a man who would cast seed upon the earth, and sleeps and arises night and day, and the seed sprouts and lengthens. How he does not know. By itself the earth bears fruit, first grass, then the stalk, then the fullness of the grain on the stalk. And when the fruit would be delivered, immediately he sends out the sky, because the harvest is at hand. 
These last two statements, the one the, the one previous concerning judgment and this one concerning the harvest, both seem to be echoed in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, the epistle of James, and I'll quote, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer awaits the precious fruit of the earth, having patience for it until he should receive the early and the late. You also have patience. Establish your hearts, because the coming of the Lord, or the prince in my translation, has approached. Do not be moaned, brethren, against one another, in order that you would not be judged. Behold, the judge stands at the door. We judge our brethren. We have to be careful, knowing that we shall be judged. So we always should bear in mind to judge fairly. Of course, from the beginning, Christians were taught that that last day is imminent, that the judgment of God is imminent. They were taught that because Christians should always be mindful to act as if it is imminent, as if the harvest were always at hand. That is fully elucidated in the parable of the servant who thought his master tarried so he started to beat the other servants, thinking that it would be a while before his master returned. And he was surprised. Mark 4, verse 30. And he said, How should we liken the kingdom of Yahweh? Or in what parable may we place it? It is as a grain of mustard, which when it is sown upon the earth, is the smallest of all the seeds upon the earth. And when it is sown, it comes up and becomes greater than all of the vegetables and produces great branches, so for the birds of heaven to be nested in its shadow. Five thousand years ago, our Adamic race, our white race, was very small in number. And in a short time, a couple of millennia, it grew to cover Europe, Northern Africa, and a large part of Asia quite quickly. Among those people 2,000 years ago, the moral precepts and foundational ideas which are Christianity supplanted all of the pagan ideas in a short time. Christian society then built the greatest civilization which the world had known to date, as far as, it is, as, far as is within our recollection. The pattern may have been repeated in the ancient world, However, most of the former world empires, when they're examined, the great societies of the distant past also began as single nations based on solid moral principles. Paul told the Romans, and it is true, that they had the truth of God and turned it into a lie. The primitive Roman religion, it could be elucidated, was the religion of the Hebrews. The Romans started out as a moral republic founded upon a sense of justice and the rule of law. They ended up a debauched, demoralized, race-mixed empire embroiled in scandal and gripped in tyranny. 
sounds <laughs> sounds like America today. The same disease has struck in America, which also struck ancient Rome. Verse 33. And with many such parables, he spoke to them the word just as they were able to hear. And without a parable, he did not speak to them, but by himself expounded all things to his own students. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 3. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. Not much of what Christ is saying is new. It was all repeated in the Old Testament. If not in word, then certainly in meaning. Again, he spoke in parables. So that those people, the children of Esau, the Canaanites, the other people of Judea, the people that weren't children of the kingdom of God, would not understand him. He spoke just as they were able to hear. And, of course, we know today that they still don't understand the meanings of the parables. Most of the things he said were already spoken in the Old Testament scriptures in different ways. We today who profess to know the truth should do the same, to state the truth bluntly every chance we get and let people think about it for themselves. A proper Christian Weltanschauung does not need excuses or ap apologetic defenses. State the truth. If they don't like it, that's just tough. Don't try to save the beasts. Verse 35. And he says to them on that day, it being late, we should go across to the other side meaning across the sea, remembered that he's standing in a boat. And having left the crowd, they took him, as he was in the vessel, and the other vessels were with his. And there came a great tempest of wind, and the waves cast upon the vessel, so for the vessel to be already filled. And he was in the stern, sleeping upon a cushion. And they aroused him, and say to him, Teacher, is it not a concern to you that we are destroyed? And waking up, he admonished the wind and said to the sea, Silence, be muzzled. And the wind abated, and there came a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you cowards? Not yet do you have faith. And they feared a great fear and said to one another, So who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Psalm 107, verse 28. Then they cry unto Yahweh in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He makes the storm, I'm sorry, he makes the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they be quiet, so he brings them unto their desired haven. If we have faith... We know that our mission shall indeed be fulfilled, no matter the obstacles. We will get to the other side. One who is pursuing the fulfillment of a godly mission has no concern for rocking boats. 
And they came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gadarenes. This is Mark chapter 5, verse 1. And upon his coming out from the vessel, immediately a man with an unclean spirit from among the tombs met him. Who had a dwelling among the tombs. And not even in chains was anyone any longer to able to bind him on account that he often having been bound in fetters and chains and the chains being torn apart by him and the fetters being shattered and no one prevails to overpower him. And throughout each night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones and seeing Joshua from afar, he had run and made obeisance to him or, as the King James usually has it, worshipped him. And crying out with a great voice, he says, What is there with me and with you, Yahshua, son of Yahweh, the highest? I adjure you, Yahweh, do not torment me. I adjure you, Yahweh. The accusative case of the Greek words for you and for God, I adjure you, God showed that both of these words are the object of the noun translated as I adjure or I exhort. The King James and other versions have I adjure you by God or something similar. And with that, I would expect to see the word for God in the dative or even in the genitive case accompanied by an appropriate preposition. Or perhaps the inclusion of the Greek word kata with the accusative to express the facility of the action by God. I know that this is um, tedious, but it has to be spoken. Wanting any of these, it is difficult to read the phrase in any other manner except what is being portrayed, that the demon considers Christ to be God incarnate. I adjure you, God. The problems of the identification of the place here, the country of the Gadarenes, I'm sorry, I'm looking at my notes and, and, and my, I have a grammar error. The problems of the identification of the place here where it is said, where, where this event is said to have occurred, I illustrated at length. Some months ago when I discussed Matthew chapter 8 here on, on, on this program. But even that illustration by itself is not sufficiently complete. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all relate this event. If indeed it is a single event, and I will explain that shortly. And the manuscripts do not agree on the name of the place where it occurred, nor on several other aspects. Discounting the manuscripts of the Alexandrian tradition, with the oldest manuscripts of Luke are generally split between Geressa and Gergesa. The oldest manuscripts of Matthew are generally split between Gadara and Gazara. And, and the, the differences in the spellings of Geressa and Gergesa 
or Gadara and Gazara could be simply dialect differences in dialect, differences between the way the Greeks pronounce these towns, the names of these towns, and the Hebrews. In Mark, all the manuscripts indicate Geressa was the place where this event occurred. Basing a decision solely upon what is perceived to be the best manuscripts for each gospel, I would have to write Geressa in Luke and Mark, and this is important as we will see in a minute, and Gadara in Matthew. And that is the way that the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Greca also has it. But even that would not necessarily be conclusive. Following the opinions of Joseph Sayer, the lexicographer, and the accounts of these places in the ancient histories, Gadara is the preferred reading for this account, as it appears in the Gospels, if we are to assume that all three Gospels are describing a single account, as I did when I translated the Christianity New Testament. It is seeming, seemingly unlikely that this is a reference to an account other than that which is also described at Matthew 8.28, where the men living among the tombs and possessed by demons were two rather than one alone, as we have here. The similar account in Luke, chapter 8, tells of only one man, as does Mark here. But there are other differences. For instance, there's a mention of legion made in Mark and in Luke, which is wanting in Matthew's account, although the rest of the dialogue is quite similar. These differences aren't really all that alarming. However, they must be noted because there is also a discrepancy in the record evident upon investigating these differences as to when Matthew became an apostle. First, let it be said that neither Mark nor Luke had recorded these events until much later, from the testimonies which were handed down by other witnesses, and neither of these men were eyewitnesses themselves. We have seen that the source for the accounts throughout Mark's entire gospel was surely Peter. That was established in the first segment of this, of, of this series. But we do not know exactly who Luke received his version of these accounts from. It's evident to any reader of Greek that he did not receive them from Mark. We are told in Luke and in Mark that Levi, a publican, had become an apostle prior to this event. That's evident in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5. It is apparent that Levi must be Matthew, who was also a publican, because Levi is not mentioned again in those accounts, where Matthew is then mentioned as being among the apostles, Mark chapter 3 and Luke chapter 6. The events in Luke and Mark which follow the selection of Levi as an apostle are the same as those following the selection of Matthew as an apostle, as it is recorded by Matthew. So we see that Matthew is Levi, and, and there should be little doubt. Yet Matthew himself tells us that he became an apostle after this event with the possessed man, and not before, as Luke and Mark both have it. Matthew records this event at Gadara in chapter 8 of his gospel, and tells us in chapter 9 that he became an apostle only then, after Christ returned from Gadara. 
Both Luke and Mount and Mark have have the account of Matthew becoming an apostle much earlier in their gospels. This discrepancy concerning when Matthew became an apostle may be the fault of the eyewitnesses that Luke and Mark received their accounts from, or it may simply be out of place. So if it were interpreted that there may indeed have been two incidents, one at Garessa and a later one at Gadara, which we're recounting here, Matthew knowing only of one of them, Two incidents that were very similar and later confounded in the memories of the witnesses. That would explain why Mark and Luke, in Mark and Luke, the better manuscripts read Garessa, because there were two separate incidents. That's a possibility. And in Matthew, the better manuscripts read Gadara. It would also explain why Mark and Luke mention the name Legion and Matthew does not. And why Matthew describes two possessed men, and Mark and Luke only one. Mark and Luke may have confounded and incorporated certain events of an earlier incident at Gerasa with what happened later here in a similar incident at Gadara. Gerasa was across the Jordan, but it was not near Galilee, being far south. Gadara was apparently immediately across the Jordan, right near Galilee. So we have those discrepancies. Bear in mind that the apostles are only relatively brief accounts of what the writers thought were the most important events of the ministry which lasted three and a half years, and that those accounts were not set down in writing until some time afterwards. When they were finally set down in writing, they were pieced together from various shorter accounts from different sources. Luke and Mark's accounts were only pieced together from testimony of other witnesses, and so is the first third of the Gospel of Matthew. If we see in Matthew chapter 9 that Matthew became an apostle at that time, then the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Matthew are things that Matthew also compiled from eyewitnesses. Mark chapter 5, verse 8. For he, meaning Christ, had said to him, the man possessed, unclean spirit, come out from the man. And he asked him, what is your name? And he says to him, legion is my name, because we are many. And he exhorted him very much that he would not send him, send them outside of the region. But there was, there by the mountain, a great herd of swine feeding. And they exhorted him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And he allowed them. And the unclean spirits, having gone out, entered into the swine. And the herd rushed headlong down the bank into the sea, about two thousand, and drowned in the sea. It seems that the demons recognized who Christ was and knew that he was their enemy. Obviously, we learn this. We learn from this that the demons know that it is not the intention of God to convert his enemies. It also seems that the swine could not stand the presence of the demons. And we also see a sign that the demons could not escape the fate 
designated for them. For in Luke's account, in Luke 8.31, we read that they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep, meaning into the Sea of Galilee. Yet the demons, going into the swine, ended up in the deep anyway, in the carcasses of the swine. So I believe that this story is an allegory for what's going to happen at the end of the age, when all the demons and all their children go into the lake of fire. The word demon, the word demon is a Greek word. It generally refers to a spirit being which is inferior to God, as the Greeks saw it. It is not the same as the word devil. The word devil is really an adjective in Greek, diabolos, which is often used as a noun in the New Testament in, in a grammatical construction called a substantive. Ho diabolos would be article, which means that the adjective is being used as a noun. And diabolos is translated false accuser in my translations when it's a noun, the false accuser. But diabolos, or devil, is not really a noun by itself. It is rather a descriptive term. The word demon refers to this particular spirit being. The word demon was also used by the Greeks to describe the genius of a man. Which would, and not necessarily a man who is a genius, right? Which would be considered a facet of the spirit of a man from a Hebrew perspective. So the genius, as the Greeks used the term, is very much like the term spirit, as the Hebrews used it. The idea of the existence of spirit demons is every bit as old as Greek writing itself. In Hesiod, Hesiod is considered the second of the great Greek poets after Homer, the great epic poets. In Hesiod, the demons were, were the souls of men who died during what the poet called the golden, the golden age of men, the first age of man in the poet's perspective. In the Enoch literature, which is quoted or referred to on several occasions in the New Testament, actually several dozen occasions in the New Testament, demons were the disembodied spirits of bastards which began to be produced in those first days of the Adamic race when certain race-mixing episodes occurred. It seems to me that Hesiod and Enoch were actually referring to the same beings. But one was referring to those beings from a pagan perspective, and the other, Enoch, was referring to those beings from a Christian perspective. I don't think that's a coincidence. Mark 5, verse 14. And those feeding them, meaning the swine, fled and reported it in the city and in the fields. 
And they came to see what it is which happened. And they come to Yahshua and observe him having been possessed by demons, he who had the legion, clothed and sober-minded, and they feared. And those seeing it described for them how it happened to him possessed by demons and concerning the swine. And they began to exhort him to depart from their borders. There is nothing in scripture or in history that I know of that we can ascertain about the race of these people in Gadara. Luke 8.26 tells us that this district was adjacent to Galilee. There were many settlements of Greeks, Romans, Syrians, and even some remnant Israelites of the 7th century and before who were in this area at this time. An examination of the Old Testament reveals that there were children of Israel who escaped, who never went into Assyrian captivity and not taken by the Assyrians, although they were nevertheless cut off from their relationship with God at the time. As it was also noted in the Matthew commentary given here, one thing that is obvious is that these people would rather continue to suffer with the status quo than to see change come, even if it were for the better. They preferred the world and their swine to the word of God. That, to me, is a very good portrait of most of our own race today. Most so-called Christians would never trade in their swine for any amount of truth. Verse 18. And upon his boarding into the vessel, he having been possessed by demons, by demons, exhorts him, meaning Christ, that he could be with him. And Christ, and he did not let him, but says to him, Go to your house, to those of your own, and report to them as much as Yahweh has done for you, and had pity for you. And he went off and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, as much as Yahshua had done for him, and they all marveled. Christ had already chosen his apostles. And therefore, he is not necessarily despising this man. Rather, the man would serve as an apostle in his own way, being a witness to the people of this area as to what God had done for him. That would be of greater value than anything the man may have done elsewhere. The Decapolis was so named because it was a region of ten cities, as the name means in Greek. Decapolis means ten cities, which was on the east bank of the Jordan, stretching most of the distance from the Dead Sea up to the Sea of Galilee. Most of those cities were probably not as large as what we may consider a city should be. Some of those cities had Greek names, and they were probably newer Hellenistic period settlements. One of them was actually named Philadelphia, but was not the Philadelphia of the Revelation. And upon Yahshua was going across in the vessel, back to the other side, a great crowd gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And one of the leaders of the assembly hall comes, named Yahiris, or Yahiris, and seeing him, he falls to his feet 
and exhorts him very much, saying that, My daughter hangs on at the end, meaning she's about to die, at which coming you may place the hands upon her that she would be preserved and live. And he went off with him, and a great crowd followed him and pressed together upon him. Jairus is an interesting and a very uncommon name. The name certainly seems to come from the Hebrew, Yah, the first syllable, for Yahweh, and the last two syllables from the Greek word, Hyrus, which is a prophetic, uh, a, I'm sorry, which is a poetic form of a word which means priest. Actually, Hieris. And therefore, this man's name, Gehiris, means priest of Yahweh, half in, English, half in Greek and half in Hebrew. There are events recorded here in Mark which are not in Matthew, and in Matthew which are not in Mark. That does not mean that there is conflict, but only that the different witnesses had different recollections and different ideas as to the order of things and what it was which was important to relate. Mark's gospel being a lot more concise than Matthew's. It is at this very point in Matthew's gospel that Matthew is recruited to be an apostle. Mark 5, verse 25. And a woman, being with a flow of blood for twelve years, and being treated often by many physicians, which is actually contrary to Hebrew custom, and having spent all of her means and having benefited nothing, but having come to be still more worse, hearing things about Yahshua, having come in from behind the crowd, grabbed his garment. For she had said, that if I could grasp even his garment, I shall be saved. And immediately the source of her blood had dried up, and she perceived in the body that it had been healed from the scourge. And immediately Yahshua, knowing within himself that there had gone out from him of his power, turning upon the crowd, said, Who grabbed my garments? And the students said to him, you see the crowd pressing together upon you, and you say, who grabbed me? And they looked about to see she who had done this. Then the woman, being afraid and trembling, knowing that which happened to her, came and fell before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace, and you must be healthy from your scourge. It is evident that Christ certainly knew who grabbed his garments, but didn't want to say so himself, rather wanting the woman to testify as to what she had done and why. Yahshua, calling this woman daughter, asserted authority over her. Therefore, in a way, he was indirectly asserting for himself to be God. Verse 35. Upon his still speaking, they come from the house of the assembly hall leader, saying that, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher further?
But Yahshua, overhearing the word being spoken, says to the assembly hall leader, Do not fear, only have faith. And he did not allow anyone to follow along with him, except Peter and James, or Jacob, and John, the brother of Jacob. I don't know how the English got the word James out of Jacob. I, 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 did, I, I refute any of the popular explanations. And they go into the house of the assembly hall leader, and he observes a clamor of many weeping and crying, and entering he says to them, Why do you make a clamor and weep? The child has not died, but sleeps. Christ obviously had no empathy for the crowd, which was evidently holding what we would call a wake. Verse 40, and they mock him. People are quick to mock any display of an attitude, right or wrong, which is contrary to their own immediate experience. But he, casting them all out, takes the father and mother of the child and those with him, and goes into where the child was. And holding the hand of the child, he says to her, Talitha kum, which is interpreted, little girl, I say to you, arise. And at once the little girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately confounded with great astonishment, and he ordered them severely that no one should notice, and said to give her to eat. Again, as it was discussed when illustrating the closing chapters of Matthew and the opening chapters of Mark's Gospel, if Christians do not think that God can indeed have efficacy in the world, then Christians have no hope at all. Talitha kum, or little girl arise, as Aramaic words appear elsewhere in Mark, this, among other things, helps to demonstrate that the gospel was originally written in Greek and not in another language and later translated into Greek. With this, I'm going to leave the next part of my presentation of the Gospel of Mark until next week, but there's a few other things I would like to talk about. I'd like to talk about part of what I spoke about yesterday on the Christogenia Europe, European Fellowship Forum. This program will get a lot more attention. They usually get a lot more downloads than the, than the Thursday Euro Forums do, and I think this is an important subject. There's a certain um, there's a certain charlatan posing as a Christian identity pastor who claims all of a sudden, I mean, he's making up his own doctrine as he goes along because he's now the identity pastor to the beasts and not to the sheep. He came up with this new idea that Cain had a chance to repent and would be saved if he, if he repented that Cain could do well, and, and that Cain could gain the favor of Yahweh if he repented. And I would like to discuss that, because that's not what Genesis chapter 4 says at all, if one really examines the language, and if one understands what a rhetorical question is in Scripture. Cain could not do well even if he wanted to. Let me read Genesis chapter 4, verses 
five through seven. First, with some background. Cain gave a sacrifice to Yahweh, which was rejected. Abel gave a sacrifice to Yahweh, which was accepted. The question that Christians should ask first is, why were they both sacrificing to God? Genesis doesn't explain that. But it's perfectly evident from other scriptures, such as the book of Numbers, such as the meaning of the priesthood of Melchizedek, that the oldest son in the family line is the family priest. In the book of Numbers, Yahweh took the tribe of Levi in lieu of the oldest son. In Egypt, he wiped out all the oldest sons. He wiped out all the family priests, the legitimate ones. Abel had no place to be sacrificing, if we understand those simple facets of the early New Testament. It can be established from the epistles of Peter and Jude that the Melchizedek priesthood was indeed the preacher of righteousness, and the preacher of righteousness was indeed the oldest son of living at the of the Adamic family line, from Adam to Seth to Enos and so forth to Noah, who was the eighth preacher of righteousness. So Abel had no place if Cain is Adam's first son in sacrificing. Abel, I believe, must have known that Cain was illegitimate and that it was his place, for he was Adam's true first son, and he was challenging Cain for the priesthood. That's why he was sacrificing. There's no other explanation for Abel to be sacrificing. Cain's sacrifice is rejected and Abel's is accepted. Because the covenant is with Abel. The covenant is with Adam. Abel is the rightful heir. Abel is Adam's son, not Cain. Cain is the son of the serpent. That's a basic two-seed-line belief. It can be demonstrated. It can be demonstrated from the New Testament. It can be demonstrated from John and from Luke. It can be demonstrated from Revelation chapter 12 and from other scriptures. When Cain's sacrifice is rejected, he's angry. When I discussed Malachi a few weeks ago, I demonstrated that, Mal that Yahweh wouldn't accept the sacrifices of the priests in the second temple because his covenant was with Levi, which meant that the priests were spurious. We know from the history books that the priests were Edomites to a great degree. Not all of them, but many of them. So Cain's sacrifice is rejected and Cain is angry. Genesis 4, 5. But unto Cain and his offering, he, meaning Yahweh, had no respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And Yahweh said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. 
Well, sin lies at the door because Cain came into the world a bastard. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. Well, Cain went right out immediately and killed his brother. The next verse, Cain kills Abel. Yahweh, could Yahweh not foresee that Cain was going to kill his brother? Well, of course God foresaw that Cain would kill his brother. He knows every choice we're going to make from the womb, as he hated Esau from the womb for being a race mixer, because he is God. And he can't help but know every choice we are going to make from the womb. Yahweh knew that Cain could not do well. Cain was a bastard. No bastard can do well. No bastard can please God. No bastard shall ever enter the congregation of God. What we have here, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted, is a challenge. What we have is a rhetorical question. There are several other examples of the same challenge in Scripture. Let's go to Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. John the Baptist is baptizing. Then he said to a crowd coming out to be baptized by him, Race of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? You should really make fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin by saying among yourselves, We have Abraham for a father. For I say to you that Yahweh is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The Edomites could legitimately, and they did legitimately, and it's proven in Romans chapter 9 and in John chapter 8, they legitimately claimed Abraham for a father. It's also proven in Galatians chapter 3 that the Edomites of the time made that claim. And the real Israelites knew better. Paul explained in Romans chapter 9 that they were vessels of destruction. Paul explained in Galatians chapter 3 that the promises were for Israel and that the other seeds of Abraham, meaning Ishmael and Esau, were excluded. Yahweh could raise up children for Abraham from stones. That would not that would not make them heirs of the covenant because Yahweh's promises with Jacob. John the Baptist goes on to say, but even the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. Surely any tree not producing good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. Joshua Christ clarifies that in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 19 where he says, Keep away from the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are rapacious wolves. You shall know them from their fruits. Does anyone gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles? Thusly, every good tree produces good fruit, but the bad tree produces evil fruit. A good tree is not able to produce evil fruit, nor is a bad tree able to produce good fruit, period. 
Each tree not producing good fruit is cut down, as John the Baptist said, already the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Christ later said, each tree not producing good fruit, and that means every bad tree, is cut down and cast into the fire. Indeed, from their fruits you shall know them. So what we see in Luke chapter 3 of John the Baptist telling this race of vipers that they should really make fruits worthy of repentance is a rhetorical challenge. He knows that they can't. They can't make fruits worthy of repentance because they themselves are the fruit of a bad tree. Paul makes a similar statement in Acts chapter 26, verses 24 through 32. After Paul announces his gospel to Festus and to Herod Agrippa II, as recorded in Acts chapter 26, Paul says this, and I quote, or I'm sorry, Luke writes this, and I quote, and upon his, meaning Paul, speaking these things in reply, Festus, with a great voice, said, Paul, you are mad. Your great learning has turned you to madness. But Paul said, I am not mad, as it is said, noble Festus, but the words which I utter are truth and discretion. For the king knows these things, the king being Herod Agrippa II, an Edomite, who was the king he was elevated to king of part of his grandfather's old kingdom, the, the northern part, which included Galilee and Trachonitis. And so he gained the title of king by Roman appointment. For the king knows about these things, to whom also I speak, being free spoken. For any of these things to escape his notice, I am not persuaded at all. Indeed, it is not in the corner that this had been done, meaning the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Paul then asks Agrippa a rhetorical question. He says, you do believe, King Agrippus, in the prophets. I know that you believe. That's a rhetorical question. You do believe, King Agrippus, in the prophets. King Agrippus, even though he was an Edomite, couldn't dare deny the prophets. The people would throw a fit. Then Agrippa said to Paul, in brief, do you persuade me to be made a Christian? Paul challenged the Edomite. Paul had already written his epistle to the Romans. Paul had already demonstrated. He wrote the epistle to, to the Romans in Corinth. While he was in Corinth, at least three or four years before this event, in Acts chapter 26, that can be established. So Paul already wrote Romans chapter 9, which explains that the the promises are truly with the children of Jacob, and that these Edomites inhabiting Judea, they are children or vessels of destruction, as it says explicitly, of the children of Esau in Romans chapter 9. 
So Paul knew who Herod Agrippa was. It was common knowledge that the, the, Herod, the family of the Herodians were Edomites. It was common knowledge in Judea. Josephus, the historian, recorded it at least five times in his histories. Paul knew exactly who he was talking to, and he challenged him. You do believe, King Agrippus, in the prophets. I know that you believe. Agrippa, like the typical weaselly, oily serpent, Edomite Jew, answered the question with a question. He evaded the question. He evaded it by saying, in brief, meaning so quickly, you persuade me to be a Christian. Paul says, I would have prayed to Yahweh that in brief and at length, not only you, but also all those hearing me today are to be such as of this manner that I also am, except for these bonds. Paul proclaimed that he wished all men were Christians, but he knew that all men couldn't be Christians. He challenged the evil, like John the Baptist challenged the evil Pharisees, the race of vipers. He challenged them to do good. Paul challenged Herod to not be a hypocrite and to admit the truth of the prophets. Herod couldn't do it. The Pharisees, they couldn't do good. Neither could Cain. It's a rhetorical challenge. It's not an offer to a bastard of peace and eternal life, as some clowns that consider themselves Christian identity pastors have recently asserted. That's a damn shame that some people have to do that, and, and there must be a damn good reason for it. That same man who, who last year tried to say that it's okay for a white person to be 10 or 15% Canaanite, he does not understand what a broken cistern is. Well, if you've got 10 or 15% Canaanite blood, that's the crack in the cistern. That cistern, your body, will never hold the Spirit of God. You do not have it. That's what a bastard is. A bastard will never hold the Spirit of God. We're told in the Enoch literature that the apostles quoted that the evil demons came from the children of bastards. We see it. In all of our recent history, we have bastards in all of our major cities right now creating havoc and destroying white culture and civilization. And we have Christian identity pastors, or men who claim to be Christian identity pastors, making excuses for those bastards and wanting to offer them messages of salvation. Christian identity has to decide what it is. It, sure, it surely does not embrace antichrists and bastards, period. Anybody who claims that it does is a fraud and a liar. Thank you. I will be back here tomorrow night. I will present my paper, The Right Far and Foe. Tomorrow, that will only take about 45 minutes, and I will hope to get some calls and um, some participation. So tomorrow night, after my presentation of my paper, I won't be prepared for anything else, so if I don't get any calls, it's going to be a short program. <laughs> if I get calls, we could talk all night. <laughs> I will be back here next Friday.
with Mark chapter 6. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for being here. Good night.